Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. So, Guy, Nick Mason, Sourceful of Secrets, of which we are um, two-fifths, right? Are, we're going back out on the road in the summer across the UK. We are. We're, it's all of June, so brace yourself. What's it called? It's called the Set the Control Store. What a brilliant name. Who do you uh, think could have come up with such a great name for a tour, Gary? I wonder. I think yeah. I'm looking at him, right? But then right. I did come up with uh, Nick Mason, Sourceful of Secrets. You did, and in fact, that came up in a podcast then because you were inspired by Woody Woodman's Is You Boat, weren't you? I was, yes. Anyway, anyway, but enough of that. So... Join Nick, Guy, Lee Harris, uh, Don Beacon and me as we celebrate the early years with, you know, that incredible, it's an incredible body of work, isn't it? The early Pink Floyd. It goes up to just before Dark Side of the Moon. It goes up to 1972, all the film soundtracks, all the Sid stuff, stuff you've never heard, stuff that no one's ever heard, frankly. obviously. Echoes is the big sort of, you know, uh, what is that? What would you call it? Magnum Opus. Yeah, I love a Magnum, don't you? Yeah, I never met Magnum. (laughs) (laughs) Um, anyway, tickets are on sale now and you can buy yours at uh, myticket.co.uk. And Kilimanjaro Live presents Nick Mason's Sourceful of Secrets, the Settler Control Tour. Hello, Gary. Hello, Guy. Another shadow. Another shadow. Unlike us, who are merely shadows of our former selves. Well, you do look like you've got eyeshadow on. I mean, let's t- for all the people who can't see you, which is everybody, <laughs> let's just tell them what I'm looking what at. What you're looking at is a rather angry purple eye um, because I poked myself with my sunglasses. Not deliberately. I, they, d- I didn't think, oh, I'll poke. I know what I'll do. I'll poke myself with my sunglasses. I was driving uh, and I put my shades on. Did you have uh, Boys of Summer playing, Wayfarers on and or trying to get your Wayfarers well, that's, on? Yeah, I was trying to reenact the last the Boys of Summer and just got it all horribly wrong. <laughs> and uh, I saw, actually saw a, I saw a deadhead sticker on a Cadillac and I swerved off the road and crashed. It was, the whole thing was just a disaster. <laughs> anyway, we, we do have another show. We do have another, we've got Bruce Welsh, who unlike Hank is an OBE. Because, remember, because Hank couldn't accept his because of his Jehovah's Witness beliefs. Really? Yeah. I, I don't want to question those, but I, that, I didn't know that you couldn't. No, no I, well, I, I only know this that. from Bruce uh, saying it in an interview. Oh, right. Ah. I mean, let's let's just go back and just talk about how huge the shadows were and a huge influence. I mean, I got I have got my little Bill Frindle moment here. As Come well, on, which is uh, between six nineteen sixty and nineteen sixty three, they had thirteen consecutive top ten hits. They had sixty nine UK chart singles, thirty three with the Shadows, and thirty four as Cliff Richard's backing band. Wow, you know, and 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 everybody, all the. The people who come before us, you know, like, you know, David and Pete and everybody, you know, they all oh, yeah. are demanding. To a man, the to a man, they all say Hank. And it's. Well, they don't. They don't all say Hank. I'll tell you why I know that. Because the, the Shadows documentary, which I know you've seen, but maybe a long time ago, yes. we, we watch it. Pete says it was Bruce. For him, it was Bruce. Oh, and he says. Oh, that's right. Yeah. He, he said Apache was as inspiring to him as this is so Pete as his first orgasm you know 
And um, yeah, none more uh, Pete. None more Pete. But he said it's it's Bruce was the reason he sees himself even today as a rhythm guitar. That's really interesting because and also because it's that sort of, well, it's something I want to talk to Bruce about. But yeah, right, because uh, it is it's that strident acoustic, which of course yeah. we know and love Pete for. Yagadang. I think it was a kind of, you know, the Apache, if you listen to the Apache acoustic, you know, he's... he's ding, 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 yeah, you know, yeah, he's, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I'm also I think it more, you know, Pinball Wizard. Of course. Um, so, you know, abs- absolutely huge. And, and, and it's, it's, re- it's very nice of, of Bruce to come on and, um, and to solve a little mystery, do you think, Guy? Oh, the maybe. Strat. Oh, I d- ooh, I, I, could this be contentious? It might be. So basically, would you tell the story? You know, I can't remember. Well, are we talking about, well, we're talking about the Red Strat. Yeah, which Cliff bought and Hank played, and now Bruce now, has, and Bruce has. But but it's uh, whenever I've seen it mentioned, it just gets skirted around, doesn't it? What yeah. what makes us different, Gary? Well, he did say that he stole it. He actually said I stole it, but he think and he's quite right. He probably we're going to ask him, but he probably believes that it's Cliff's guitar, really. At the end of the day, um, and it was you know the first Stratocaster ever to be brought in to to the UK. It was like the first, this arrival of a, a piece of the cross, isn't it, really? It is. <laughs> no, I mean, how important is it? No, absolutely. It's so, it's so important. And the fact that it's red as well. There's something about the, you know, the blood, the blood of our saviour, I don't know, Buddy Holly or whatever. This goes out on a Sunday. So I just find it interesting that I would have thought, because what, because it was, because Cliff got the catalogue, didn't he? He got the little, and it was a very small little catalogue that you had to send off for and get from California. And you, you have catalogues, from, don't you? You get your, all your clothes. I get everything from catalogues. <laughs> but in those days, people got guitars. <laughs> no, I mean, but you're right. These, no, but, it, but I would have thought that, it, I'm sure if it was me or you, Gary, or any, is that you would flick through that category and uh, through that catalogue. And as soon as you saw a sunburst, You'd be like, oh, come on. Because you've never seen that before. You've never yeah. seen a sunburst on anything. No, that's true. That's true. But they they chose the Fiesta Red, didn't they? Because they did. that was Buddy Holly's guitar. Yeah. Let's let's get him on. Welcome to the Rock on Tours. Okay, guys, I'm ready. Well, it's a big tune for sure. I actually wrote that originally for Tina Turner. Of course, I had gone and found Joni Mitchell down in Florida and brought her back. I've listened to a few of them and they've been really good, man. I'm sitting in the back of the car coming into London. They're brilliant. That caused a big problem in the band, actually. I was having too much fun. Thank you guys for still being around, still making music, still being into it, and doing this podcast. It, it's uh, it's fabulous. Well, I get the feeling that us three should go for a bite. That's what I think. I'm in a band now. <laughs> it's called Roxy Music. You know this thing about the 10,000 hours of experience? Oh, yeah, that's it. Get good at yeah. something. When we recorded Arnold Lane, we'd done about 50 hours. The Rock Hunters Podcast with Gary Kemp and Guy Pratt. Keep on rocking! Hello, Bruce. Hi, Bruce. Pretty high. How are you, Guy? Very well, thank you. How are yeah. you? Good, good, good. I can see you two. Can you see us? I can see both of you, yeah, but when you get to 82, you don't want to be in shot. <laughs> I saw you not that long ago and you look fabulous. You've still got all that hair to be envious of. I mean, look at us two. Exactly. You know, in fact, don't look out. at me too closely because I've managed, I banged my eye with my sunglasses and I look like I've been in a fight. I've got two of these, though. One of them's always in the wash, you know, the hair. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you know, I, I re-watched, and I know guys watched it, the... Um, that fantastic Shadows at 60 that's uh, the documentary film on, on yeah. the BBC. Yeah. And um, it's just so, it, it reminds us how you guys invented everything that we are now 
doing today? I mean, you know, your influence on the Beatles, your influence on people like David Gilmore and, and Pete Townsend and yeah. that whole generation, which have obviously passed the baton on to us. And, well, and it was forward. Hank, of course, as you well, Hank, as you well, you well know. It was Hank, you know, his, his uh, amazing guitar playing. Well, that's very generous of you, Bruce, but as Gary was pointing out in that documentary, for instance, Pete Townsend says for him it was you. He does, yeah, yeah, but he'll say anything. No, he, he he says, you know, and he is right. You know, he's a Pete sees himself as a rhythm guitar player, and yeah, that's who you were, and you were inventing that genre, really, weren't you? You know, I guess so. Yeah, I guess so. I, I didn't realise it at the time, but I guess so. Yeah. Well, also, I'm going to put something to you, Bruce, that I think because it was very, very generous the way you, because you're, and because a lot of it was acoustic, but it's, it's the rhythm guitar in the shadows really was rhythm guitar. It was playing the chord. It, it's not like the Stones where everyone gets to play the fun riff. It was yeah. like Hank was doing all this single note stuff. You're doing the chords. And I reckon it's that sort of generosity and care for the arrangement is what made you, is part of why you became a very good and successful producer because you care about the whole more than anything. Yes, and, and also I hear the whole. Obviously, as a producer, yeah. you hear the whole, don't you? You don't just, you know, you're listening. When I listen to records, for instance, and I'm telling people, I said, oh, can you see what the little triangle is doing in the corner here, you know? And most people just listen to a record and it's a wall of sound, isn't it? But as a producer, yeah. of course, it, it sort of spoils you in a way. You're going, oh, I like what he's doing on the, you know, the left there. Yeah. Even the look of your band, you know, these you know four guys in suits and um you know what did we end up with with the beatles i mean you know brian epstein said get take the leather jackets off lads get into those suits you know and there's that great shot um or, or that footage at the enemy awards in 1964 which i you know we can talk about yes. later on because yeah, yeah. it's a it's a sort of pivotal point in 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 rock music in many ways it's the passing of the baton you know you guys play and you've got your four black suits and and ties and and you walk off and on come these kind of lookalikes the beatles you know and well you can't you can't blame i can't blame the suits on us as well no but, but brian epstein brought bought sorry brought the beatles to liverpool empire in the real early days as he said to see what a proper band looks like huh wow <laughs> But we were booted by then, early days, you know, looking smart. Looking because that was all, because, yeah, you, you, you've been sort of rock and roll to begin with, haven't you? I mean, Cliff had had his, I mean, when it was with Cliff, because he was very much the Elvis-styled, yeah. wasn't he? I mean, early British rock and roll, really, really, you know. I'm being derogatory again, but, yeah, it, we were, I know we were a huge influence on the group boom, because I always say, you know, without the shadows, probably there would have never been a group boom because everybody wanted, everybody wanted to look like, sorry, play like Hank, and yeah. everybody wanted to play bass like Jet Harris, and you know, Tony Meehan on drums, all that stuff. Um, so I think that's what we created: guys wanting to, to play like Hank and play like Jet and play, possibly play like me. Yeah, and I can't think of another example of that actual breakaway because it wasn't uncommon to have a lead singer and a backing band you know all throughout the 50s and 40s even yeah. um <clears throat> but this moment when you actually break away as and and form your own band and without a particular lead singer um and then of course you go into a chart battle with with cliff um you know a great were, chart battle yeah 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 because we were are we talking about apache coming 
Yeah, I am actually. But we're talking about July 1960. So we'd been Cliff's backing band, um, scumbags, from October 58 till July of 60. And that's when we had the number one with Apache. And that changed the Shadows' lives totally. You know, we, we, we became a huge name by ourselves. But the great thing was we, we always worked together. You'd have, you'd have the Shadows would close. Once we'd had the hits, the Shadows would close the first half of the show. There'd be a 15-minute interval. And then Cliff and the Shadows would do the second half of the show. Yeah, but promoters and managers love that. (laughs) (laughs) Nice and easy. (laughs) You knocked Cliff off the top of the charts. Was that that, that a Cliff, Richard and the Shadows record you knocked off the charts? Cliff and the Shadows was called Please Don't Tease, which I co-wrote, number one. So it was Cliff and the Shadows, number one, with Please Don't Tease. And we released Apache, and it knocked Please Don't Tease off the top of the charts. Wow. But it's, I mean, Cliff deserves deserves a real kind of uh, tip of the hat here, doesn't he? Because he was always incredibly generous in like he was saying you should m- be making records, right? Yeah, he was always saying to, and I say always, everything happened so quickly, guys. It really happened quickly. You know, Hank and I came to London in April 58. We went to the Two Eyes. We met Cliff in September 58. Even then, uh, Cliff was saying to Norrie Paramore, Nori, I think you should listen to my band, you know, I think. Uh, and we made, Nori signed us up probably in December of 58, because in, in January 59, we had our first single out. By the way, um, your, the, your mention of the two eyes, this is where I get to play my little card, which is that, because uh, the basement of the two eyes had actually been painted by my dad and Lionel Bart for a case of beer, because my dad co-wrote all those Tommy Steele records, Bruce. Really? Rock yeah. with the Caveman? Rock with the Caveman, wow. uh, Elevator Rock, Doomsday Rock, Little oh, White wow. Bull, handful of songs, yeah. I didn't know that, but I knew Lionel had painted it because I met or we met Lionel down the two eyes in 1958. And he was like a student then. He had jeans and he had um, bare feet. You know those Roman sandals where you tie the yeah, yeah. around it? That's how he looked like that. So he was, a, uh, I guess, a bohemian to us in those days, you know. From yeah. The- well, you might have met my dad. I mean, he was very much there. Mike Pratt. Yeah, Mike Pratt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, amazing. I didn't. I didn't. Well, you know, do you know what then, guy? Because th- this means that Bruce has some of your dad's artwork on his wall. Because he's got. You've got Bruce, haven't you? A couple of the of, of pieces of the plaster painted plaster work from the basement of the two eyes. Absolutely. Lionel Bart and myself. They were going to pull the place down that afternoon. The, the interior, the, the cellar, they were taking it down to make the restaurant bigger. So Lionel and I went down and the guys were hacking at the wall you know, that he'd painted and your dad had painted. And I took a bit of the wall. So I've got that in my toilet, you know, as a, as a permanent reminder. Of wow, well, well, you'll clearly be hearing from my solicitors. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure That's it's fantastic. The, I'm not sure it's the bit your dad painted. Uh-huh. I think it's probably Lionel. Well, DNA test it. Yeah. <laughs> Bruce, I mean, that's obviously what, what you're giving us here is a little precis potted history, but we should just be a little bit more detailed. Yes, and of course. Really sort of talk about what, how you grew up and what influenced you. Because you weren't even Bruce Welch, were you? No, I was born Bruce Cripps, illegitimate, in 1941, in the war, a war baby. Yeah, and my mum was Welsh, so I took her name. So I was I was thinking of being Buddy Cripps and, you know, 
I, I love that. Yeah, I've, I've heard you say that before. Elvis Crips. Elvis Crips. You know, it's not that ring, has it? Well, it's, uh, I think he's a horror movie star. The only Crips was Sir Stanley Crips was, I think, not Prime Minister, but I don't know, some foreign minister or something at the time. So he could have been my dad. <laughs> ah. But, but what was the sort of music that you, you grew up on and, and how I, did rock and roll enter your life? I probably started noticing songs with Guy Mitchell, Tennessee Ernie Ford, 16 Tons, uh, Guy Mitchell, She Wears Red Feathers and a Hula Hula Skirt, all mm. that stuff. Mm -hmm. That would have been about 54, maybe, 1954. Wow, yeah. and that's, that's literally like four years before. Yeah. Know, because it, so this really needs to be... Uh, it, it is really worth pointing out the fact that that you were so everyone was so young but what's what's sorry i'm sorry i don't mean to jump ahead but it's, it's only because guy this is the thing that really gets me with these guys is that we've spoken to lots of people who were very young entering like you know going into band situations but the thing with you guys like with you and hank going down everyone was totally young you didn't have a grown-up in the room at all no we were we were 16 <laughs> yeah straight from, straight from school and off to London, you know. But but what was that first rock and roll record then that that you turned your head? Oh, probably fifty five. Bill Haley, probably Rock Around the Clock. Yeah, you know you couldn't you couldn't miss it. Bill Haley, and I think uh, in many ways has been written out of history because he he looked like a bank manager, not not a rock star, you know. Well, and he was so, but especially to you guys, he must, I mean, he was, what, 34? He was 34 when he made Which it. must have been unimaginably old to you. <laughs> I mean, he could have been our father, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah. You know. Could have been your granddad, almost. Could have been your granddad, yeah. And weren't there stories of people, of the movie, going to the movie house and ripping up the chairs? Was that? Absolutely. Was that that? They did, yeah. The Blackboard Jungle, the Blackboard Jungle, they, they played Rock Around the Clock in the Blackboard Jungle. Great story, quick story, Blackford Jungle. Glenn Ford was the star of it, big star Glenn Ford, and his son loved music. Anyway, Glenn Ford said, I need, I'm gonna have a the I need a theme song for to go in the film. And he'd heard something, I think he'd heard something of Bill Haley's, which wasn't Rock Around the Clock. And his son, who was about 15, said to him, I think you should use this song, Dad. You know, and it was Rock Around the Clock. And I went to the cinemas, you know, in when I was 14, I was 1955, 56. And they were the Teddy Boys were tearing the you know tearing the place to bits <laughs> when Rock Around the Clock came on, driving, you know, ripping up the seats. And that was in Newcastle. Oh, but Bruce, I've got. But I've said this uh, on 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 Rock on Tours before, and it's something I think is is important. Is that I think the reason everyone went so mad at those film screenings was not only hearing that music, but it was the only chance anyone would have had to hear it at that volume. Absolutely. Absolutely. But it was, well, I'm talking to two pros. It was just new. It was so new. It was exciting. Nobody had heard this sort of stuff before. No one. Mm. You know, and then from Haley, we had, you know, Fats Domino and, and Little Richard and all the others came. And, and for two kids like Hank and I, and I'm sure Hank has mentioned all this before, at school, you know, and Lonnie was the king here. Lonnie was yeah. the catalyst for us playing, because I used to read everything. First of all, I, the, the reason I got the two eyes, or we went to it because I'd read Tommy Steele was discovered there. And that's a different story, as you know. But Lonnie came with this music, you know, and he said, anybody can play this stuff, you know, and you only need 
two or three acoustics and this, that, and the other. Of course, we all went out and bought an acoustic. I went out to a sports shop when I was 14 and paid £4.19 for a guitar. It was my first guitar. Where'd you get the money? I borrowed it from my auntie. Well, oh, oh, bless her. From a sports shop? From a sports shop. So you'd imagine what sort of guitar it was. You couldn't press the strings down after the fifth fret. I always wonder, because the football boots I got from Macari's were terrible. I was <laughs> <laughs> No, that was first guitar. Lonnie was the, the catalyst for yeah. all of us, really, and American rock and roll, obviously. But in this country, as you well know, the two of you, we had John and Paul in a skiffle group in Liverpool. Hank and Bruce were a skiffle group in Newcastle. The Hollies had a skiffle group in Manchester. Everybody was in a skiffle group. That's uh, Jimmy Page was in a skiffle group. Yeah, so yeah. My dad played at a skiffle night at the Albert Hall when he used to work play with the Vipers and oh. the Cotton Pickers. I knew the Vipers did, well. Yeah. yeah. Well, but, did, 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 didn't your drummer Brian Brent Bennett played with the Vipers, didn't he, for a bit? Uh, That's right. He, I think he did. Not professionally, I don't. Not Brian played yeah. with everybody because Brian yeah, right. Bennett was the house drummer at the Two Eyes. Oh, as much as you can be a house drummer, you know. Well, with as much of a kit as you could get in that basement. Well, you could only get the kit on one side. Yeah. Well, I mentioned we could only get a little kit on one side of this stage. The stage was probably about four or five feet wide, and maybe three feet high. There's some great footage actually of the Vipers playing there, and it's, it's unbelievable. In fact, with, with my dad playing guitar, but it's yeah. and it is everyone's just completely. In everyone's laps. If it's a colour shot of a drummer, it's Brian Bennett on drums in the corner. Can I can I can I offer up an idea that um, Skiffle was very associated with railroaders and working blue collar workers, and you know in Liverpool you've got the Dockers, you know, and up in Newcastle you guys, you know, it's a mining community. Was there a kind of sense the shipbuilders, the shipbuilding, yeah? And was there a sense of connection because of that? Do you think? Uh, No. I don't think. (laughs) It would have been nice. It's my romantic side. Moving swiftly along. (laughs) Just a record, wasn't it? A record came out called Rock Island Line and you heard it on the radio and went, what was that? What is that? But that's the other thing is hearing it, um, just hearing all these these records. You know, there wasn't a Radio 1. I mean, no. you know, it's it was it, and and there weren't pirate radio stations yet, Bruce. Where where were you hearing them? I would have seen Lonnie. We saw Lonnie. You know, living in Newcastle, there's a city the city hall, and um, Chris Barber and his jazz band would come. Right. And, and Lonnie Donigan was the the banjo. The interval. Oh, he would do he would do the interval, wouldn't he? Yeah, but he was the he was his banjo player. Oh, he's a fantastic ah, banjo player. Right. Hank plays the banjo. He learned the banjo. You know, he he played banjo at school. George Melly, uh, George Melly was the singer as well, wasn't he? And Chris George Mellie, band. Yeah. and Natalie Patterson was the girl who, who Chris married. But I mean, it was a fantastic band. Just and Lonnie was, and then he, Lonnie would do his spot, his skiffle spot. And the famous story is, of course, Chris Barber. They just Lonnie said, "I want to record this song," so he recorded it as Lonnie Lonnie Donegan skiffle group as part of Chris Barber's jazz band, and Chris paid him seven quid to sing it, and that was his royalty. Oh, oh. <laughs> I mean, he was a, a, a little bitter about that, you know, at the end. Yeah. So imagine. you 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 um you formed a band up there, did you? And of course, you know, it was about railroaders, wasn't it? That that was the, the yeah, train analogy. There's a cafe in in Newcastle Central Station called the Railroad, 
Yeah. It's be the railroad because we used to go and um, have a cup of tea there, you know, 11 o'clock at night. It was a place that was open late. After we did one of our gigs in a pub where we got two quid. But hang on, so you're doing these gigs. I mean, if you're 16 when you go to London, how old are you when you start doing these gigs in Newcastle? 14, 15, 14. Learning the guitar as we went, you know, but listening to Lonnie, listening to his stuff. Because Hank tells us that you were such an inspiration to him because he 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 remembers being in the school playground and he's, and seeing a group of kids, yeah. all standing in a circle, and 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 up above these kids was coming the headstock of a guitar, and he went over to it and it was you playing guitar to them. Yeah, it was it was a national, national uh, steel. Wow, that's posh. God, that's God quite knows, posh, isn't it? Isn't it? Tell it, it still is, isn't it? But yeah. I don't know where I got it from. And I certainly, you know, you know what you're like, though, as pros. I don't know where it went, but that's, yeah. <laughs> that, that's, uh, that was the catalyst for Hank and I uh, at school. You know, what song were you playing? Do you remember? Oh, I can't remember. No. Yeah, summer holiday probably. <laughs> <laughs> Already <laughs> written. What would have? What would have been? But what would have? Were you? Was was it sort of by that point? Were you hip to kind of Lead Belly or Big Bill Bruce uh, or anything? Hank like that? was in. Hank was into all of that. I was into, for want of a better word, the more commercial stuff, which was Lonnie. You know, Lonnie, I mean, Skiffle started in the, in the, it's an American music, you know, where did Skiffle come from? It's, it's black music from the 20s and 30s in America. They, they used the word Skiffle. Well, it's, if you look at the history of that song, Rock Island Line, yeah. it goes back to sort of the 1890s or something, doesn't yeah. it? But, you know, Lonnie rewrote it as he did all of his yeah. first of hits, you know. Um, there wasn't there wasn't really the equivalent though that there was something that was very British wasn't it that sort of do it yourself putting you know yeah. tea chests and strings together and making instruments like you that well, it's exactly the same ethos that became punk thirty years yeah. later it's exactly yeah. the you know it's that yeah, same yeah. mindset of how do we how do we how do we get heard but we all did it guys we all did it this was the new music this was Lonnie it, was, it all happened in fifty six Elvis came in January fifty six Heartbreak Hotel. Rock Island 9 was January 56. I mean, that, that was number one in America. Lonnie was number one in America with Rock Island 9. Amazing. Amazing. And so how long was it before the 65 special started? You know, I'm trying to think if that was... Well, talking about quick things, we came to London. I thought I'm sounding like a stuck record player. We came in April 58, knowing no one, didn't know anybody, didn't have any money. But we were on, Hank and I were on, in a little band in June of six, we were on um, Six Five Special. That's we, I mean, we were on TV. But, but, but let's let's just tell me how you got there because you you were going to London, weren't you, to to do a competition? Yeah, it was a it was a thing called Sid Dale's National Skiffle Competition, you know. And um, but I tell you, was what, he Jim? Was he Jim Dale's dad or something? No, I don't know. All right. I can't remember, actually. He may well have been. Pro yeah. Probably. I mean, probably. You know I, mean? I have a vague memory he was Jim probably. Dale's dad. But, but people had this great scam, Sid Dale, one of them, where we, those days, before your time, every, every town had a variety theatre. You know, we were in variety. We started in variety. We didn't start in the music business because there really wasn't a music business as we think of it now. And Sid Dale could go around and actually had Jim Dale on. So Jim Dale had a big hit record, Be My Girl or something like that was called. 
But what they did, they auditioned. They get to, you know, they play a week in a town like Newcastle. They would audition local skiffle bands and say it was a competition. So all, so all the, uh, the five or six free got, support. Yeah, free support. So five or six local bands would get up, hoping to, you know, hoping to get on, you know, go to glory. And uh, of course, nothing happened to them. And then Jim Dale, I think, probably came on and did. Well, I definitely saw Jim Dale. So he probably did about twenty minutes, top of the bill. But get back to London, we lost the competition to a, a, an opera singer. I think it was a Malaysian opera singer. <laughs> what kind of competition is that? I thought it was a skiffle group competition. They're, they're casting the net pretty wide there, aren't they? <laughs> it's a con, isn't it? It's another clever con, really. Anyway, we... Did she, I mean, did she have an orchestra with her? I mean, how did that work? No, it would be a little group. No. Actually, probably just a, a piano. I've never heard of an orchestra group. I don't know. <laughs> But I have, a, have an opera went, group, sorry. We went, uh, when the other guys went home the next day, we went, Hank and I went to the Two Eyes. So from about April the 8th of 58, we spent time in the Two Eyes. All day, every day, we didn't have, didn't have anywhere else to go. We loved the atmosphere, musicians coming in. Can I play, have a little jam session? Can I do this with you? Can I sit in and all that stuff? But you, you had because you'd had I, I, no, I know, you know, unless you want to tell again. We know apparently you lucked upon uh, a kindly Geordie landlady. This is took you in, right? This is yeah. Holly Park near Finsbury Park. Took us in after the after the manager, bless him, Mister Livingstone. It was. He said, um, "So what are you doing, guys? You know, because I got out of Newcastle. He said, where are you going?" I said, "I don't know." He said, "Well, where are you staying?" I said, "This is ten o'clock at night in Edmund." And I said, well, we don't know. We, we haven't got anywhere. And he said, are you serious? I said, yeah. So he said, hang on a minute. He came back about 10 minutes later. He said, I know this lady who runs a boarding house in Finsbury Park. And he said, I've called her and told her there's two Geordies uh, who have got nowhere to go. And Mrs. Bowman was a Geordie. And she said, bring them back here. And we went back there and stayed in her attic for about six months. And you're did still you... there to this day, aren't you? <laughs> what did, but what did, what did still you still owe the rent? I, I don't know. Were you brought up by your parents? I mean, what did they think? Or were you you living with well, your no, mum? Your mum, sadly, when you were very young. What did, what did yeah. they think? You just phone home and say, we're not coming back. What did, go crazy. No, no. Mum had died, so I, I didn't know mum. Uh, she had TB and couldn't cure it in those days. Right. Dad was uh, gone missing. So I was brought up by my aunt, my aunt Sadie in, New, in Newcastle, outside of Newcastle. So, you know, how did we go and when we do it? When we left school, we just said, we are going to London, Auntie. We just, this is what we want to do. We were t- caught up in music, as it was, you know, skivel and rock and roll. This so there was something, there was, sorry, sorry to interrupt, but there was something, you didn't just go down to London for this competition and yes, then stay the night. You kind of had a vision that that's where you were going. Well, we wanted, we just wanted to be in this business, I guess, in this rock and roll business, in this skiffle, you know, skiffle come rock and roll. We just wanted to be in it. We wanted to be part of it. We had no idea how to do it. And then a lovely friend of ours, Chaz, became a lovely friend. You've heard of Charles McDevitt and the record Freight Train. Freight Train, Freight Train. The skiffle group. Number one in America, number one here, number one. So we used to go and see, I told you about the, uh, the theatres that every, every city had. Newcastle Empire was where all the stars came 
every a big star every week. And Chaz McDevitt came to play. We watched him as well. We watched Lonnie. We watched all the other people. And they, there was a club they went down to after the gig. You know, and they were they were probably thirty year old guys then. You know, and they had about three three acoustic rhythm players, fantastic washboard player. And uh, so we went down at this club. Now we would still be only be fifteen, and uh, got talking to Chaz. He was very, you know, I mean, to us he was a big star. He'd been just been top of the bill, and he was very kind. And I said, "Oh, we, Mr. McDevitt, you know, Hank and I, we, we'd just love to to be doing what you're doing. You know, it's, it must be so exciting. You know, one week you're in Newcastle, next week you're in Manchester, then you're in Liverpool, and you're, yeah, and we'd love to, you know, be in what you're doing." And he said, you'll never do it from here. You'll never do it from Newcastle. You would have to go to London. Mm. So that was the that was the catalyst from that. There's two things that bring tears to my eyes, Bruce. And that's Paul meeting John at that, you know, and yeah. seeing John play in the Quarrymen. Yeah. And that first meeting when he when John tested him. And then there's this image of these two young 15 16 year old geordie boys getting themselves from newcastle down to london yeah. and how we've all grown out of that that you know guy and i wouldn't be sitting here with our band and none of this would have probably happened if those two events hadn't have happened and just to say thank you bruce as well yeah it's true because what would have happened is that Gary and I would be on tour sort of supporting ventriloquists and jugglers. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Because nothing would have changed. Yeah, no, we, we did all that. We've been had... put on by Sid Dale's great-grandson. Or <laughs> Shadow did a tour. We did a nightclub once, and uh, an elephant was a second top. Uh, Baby elephant. Seriously. Wow. <laughs> uh, right, yeah, right, I'm not right, following right. that. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> So just just what about this Two Eyes Club? Because uh, I just want a bit more detail, really. Okay. You know, it, was, so it was all coffee bars, wasn't it? This is the great thing about Denmark. So not Denmark. It was old Compton, wasn't it? Yeah. Because there was literally another coffee bar next door. And then there was another one two doors down. There was the one Heaven with the coffins hell. and everything. Oh, yeah. All Heaven and hell. Yeah. Yeah. But the Two Eyes was owned by two Iranian brothers. And then it, then it was owned by two wrestlers, uh, Australian wrestlers. And they become friendly to us once they knew we'd come from London. Sorry, came down to London. They were they were kind. They let us play there and all that stuff. But it was like it it was much smaller than the cavern. It was you know hot and sweaty. You know they all sweat running down the walls. There was no air down there, and they could probably get a probably a hundred people down there, crammed down there. We probably played there. No, I don't know, four nights a week, maybe they let, let us play four nights a week, which is, when I say play, singing, you know, Elvis and Buddy Holly and the Everleys and everything, you know, Lonnie songs, the, the music of the day. That's what we and Were you the drifters then? Were you the drifters? No, we weren't well, even still, the drifters. Still then. the railroaders. We, were, still, we, we were just Bruce and Hank, the Geordie boys. We were known as the Geordie okay. boys. But you've got to remember, Hank and I coming from Newcastle. Now, Newcastle was grey, you know, dark, sites still there you know shipyards with, with the big work and, and the pits and all that stuff and we came down to soho old compton street and the place was buzzing you know lights italian coffee shops you know first time i saw two guys kissing each other i thought he was giving them a kiss of life in the doorway <laughs> but, but it was just so exciting but this yeah. place was famous because tommy Steele. 
they'd come from there. We'd read it, we read it in the Daily Mirror, so it must be true. Well, that's why we went to the two eyes. But there must have been, there was a parallel, wasn't there? There was a parallel jazz scene, not the trad scene. Wasn't there a sort of cutting edge bebop jazz thing happening as well? Or was that just a completely another world that you didn't really? We didn't, we wouldn't understand it. We couldn't play no. it. So there was a jazz club, a modern jazz club called The Nucleus, which is in Endell Street. Um, and trad jazz was huge. I mean, in all the clubs. Yeah, trad was, yeah. It was big, 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 big. And, uh, it's trad, Dad. Trad, Dad. They made a movie, didn't they? It's trad. Oh, was, it, was, it was it the hand jive supposedly invented in the two eyes because there was no room to dance? Yeah, you couldn't uh, You couldn't dance. It was, you know, you're standing shoulder to shoulder. <laughs> but well, yeah, everything was tight. It was like the cabin. You couldn't, you couldn't really dance in a cabin either. Uh, yeah. When did Cliff appear down there? Right. So I'm, I'm, Hank and I weren't playing or singing that night. Hank wasn't there that night. I'm doing the orange juice for, you know, fiddle with money. Doing the orange juice. And uh, this guy came down and, and I didn't, uh, I wasn't introduced to him. I was just still doing the orange juice. And it was Cliff and his drifters, his friends, the drifters. And he looked amazing. I mean, he looked, he had the sideburns. He was born in India, so he's, you know, swarthy skin. And um, he was just really, really good, really exciting. And I went back to Hank and said, there's some guy in tonight, you know, it was called Cliff Richard, you know. And uh, that would have been really early on. That would have been in April, probably. So we, we hadn't been in the two eyes very long. Because Cliff didn't, I think he only played there once. And that was that's when I was there. So he didn't do a season or anything like that. Okay, well, that's handy. That's handy that you were on the Orange Juice Machine that night, isn't it? Yeah, but it, I didn't sort of meet him or say hello. No, It was months later that his his manager in inverted commas came down you know, looking for a great guitarist we could uh, just get the timeline right Did, had move it come out before he no, not in April. move it came out in september of 58 right right now late september we we hank was in the two eyes in september probably halfway through september some guy you know practicing playing having a laugh with mates. And a guy came down and said, uh, I'm looking for this guitarist, Tony Sheridan. He's heard about Tony Sheridan. There were two great players in the two eyes, Hank Marvin and Tony Sheridan. Really good, really, really good. And uh, Tony wasn't there. So he said, oh, I'm looking for a league. This guy said, I'm looking for a league guitarist for Cliff Richard. For... So it was sort of, well, who's Cliff Richard? Nobody knew who he was, really. So Hank said, well, I'll play you. So Hank sat and played him some licks, you know, all the, he could play the intro to that'll be the day. If you could play that, you were, you know, a great guitar player. Oh, but you're, you've often said this, he was the one guy who could play single notes. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. 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 He knew where the next one was coming from as well. He knew where to go. <laughs> yeah. So this guy said to him, I've got his three week tour coming up. Love you to do it. And Hank said, uh, he said, do you need a rhythm guitar player? Yep. You know, Bruce is a really, really, really good, a guitar player, a rhythm guitar player. And he said, yeah, fine, if you know, bring him along. So I got there and we went around a corner into Dean Street. We went up a flight of stairs to a, a tailor and Cliff was standing there with his arms outstretched, you know, like Jesus on the cross, having his pink jacket uh, made. Hank and I are 16, pimples, sweaty. Cliff's 17, pimples, sweaty. And he said, can you come back to my house? 
and and uh, have a rehearsal. I guess it was an audition. We didn't really feel that. But, so we slept on a bus out to Chesant in Hertfordshire to his council house where he lived with mum and dad and three sisters. We went in the front room. You know, the front room was the, the posh room. Yeah. We sat and played everything we could think of. You know, Ricky Nelson, My Babe and all that stuff. Gene Vincent, uh, Buddy Holly, Everly's. And Cliff said, yeah, great. He said, that's it. He said, love you to do it. The two of us for three weeks. And that was it. You've told a story about Move It before, Bruce, but where it's, it's, it's the same as the story you said about, I can't remember earlier, about another song where it's, it was down to someone's kids is why that was the A-side. Yeah, no. Wasn't it? it was... Absolutely true story. Yeah. Evidently, Clifford recorded Move It. Well, I know he'd recorded it, but Norrie was the producer, you know, God, he was a God, the producer. And Norrie said, we're doing Schoolboy Crush as the A-side, which was a cover of an American hit. Because in those days, if you're old enough to remember, a lot of English pop stars, for want of a better word, covered American hit. That's how they had hits. And so Cliff did Schoolboy Crush and Move It on the same session. And of course, Move It. Fantastic record. Still a fantastic. Yeah, first British rock and roll record. Ernie Shearer on guitar um, and a session bass player, Frank Clark on on bass and Terry Smart. And Cliff said, they listened to it and uh, Norrie said, great, that's great, schoolboy crush. And and Cliff said, oh, Norrie, you know, this is is so special, this record, you know. And he kept badgering me and you couldn't really badger your producer, you know, when you're 17, you couldn't give him a hard time. So he said, I'll take it home. Play, it to my, play them to my kids, the girls, and I'll, I'll let you know. And the girls chose moving. Two years later, same story with Apache. Norrie said to us, uh, Quartermaster Stores is going to be your next day side. So and we said, well, we've got this tune, Apache. Okay, we'll record Apache. So we did Apache, same thing. Hank with the echo box for the first time. Fantastic, you know, all the echo. Me on acoustic guitar by then, huge. I borrowed Cliff's J200. And same thing. And we said, oh, great. This is really unusual. It's really good. And he said, no, Quartermaster Stores will be the A side. And, and we said the same thing. All right, please. He said, I'll take it back to my daughters. He took it back to his daughters, played the two children, uh-huh. and they chose Apache. How is oh, it? Oh, my God. I'm hoping that they grew up and went on to become some top A&R team. <laughs> they became Simon Cole. What was it like going back to Newcastle City Hall and playing there? I mean, you must have returned as kings. Did you? Did all your old mates turn out and your family? Well, we'd gone, as I said, we left in April 58. The two other guys in the band, the Skiffle band, went home. Uh, they were slightly older than Hank and I. They were probably 20 years old. They went home. So in October, on this tour, we turn up at Newcastle City Hall. The Kalin twins were top of the bill. American, you know, that fantastic record, When. And Cliff and the Drifters came on. And of course, Cliff was doing his Elvis with a pink jacket and the hands behind the head. And Hank and I are wheeling our legs and all that stuff at the front, you know, playing rock and roll. And the guys uh, that had come home were sitting about five rows back in the audience and half our classes from school were there, all watching. It was amazing. Just oh, what you said, it was just amazing. I mean, 
I sang at Newcastle City Hall as a choir boy, you know, at school, you know. Uh, Amazing. It's a, no, it's it a was great venue. Great, great venue. But because also, just thinking about what you were talking about making these records, Gary, you remember when you first went into the studio and how, and, you know, even for us, it was just doing demos and stuff and how incredibly intimidating it was and how out of your depth. And so, but we, you're making these records and, and you're also, you know, there's you and Hank and Cliff, your children. I mean, the the um, the pressure that must have felt like, or, or was it just kind of, well, did it feel completely natural? We didn't know we were scared. You know, we went to Abbey Road yeah. in uh, October 58, no, November 58. But of course, then Abbey Road wasn't the famous Abbey Road it is now. Well, no, it was EMI Studios. And in fact, it was EMI Studios until the Beatles made Abbey Road. That's why it's called Abbey Road. <laughs> but um, it was just scary, scary. But we didn't make demos in those days. We didn't make demos. We didn't have right. anything to make a demo on. The demos were the records, you know. Yeah, <laughs> it was Studio first. Two, wasn't it? Studio Two. Studio Two, yeah. And, and what was what was the first what was the first record that that, that was a hit for you, for you? We played on yeah. a thing called Living Love and Doll. Oh right. Record, not a huge hit, but it was the first one. God, yeah. just yeah. for crying. Yeah. No, no, that's no, no, that's no, Living no, Doll. That's Living Doll. That's Living Doll. This is Living Love and Doll. This was oh, Living Love and Doll. Oh, sorry. End of '58. Not to be confused with Loving Living Doll. Oh, yeah. <laughs> You're getting me confused now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, but we were we were nervous. We hadn't been in the studio. You know, it was just uh, and and as you and it was guys in white coats, right, and biros and the pen yeah, and, and the pockets and stuff. Brown coats with the technician set the machines up and all that you know and uh we had a good luck studio yeah good luck studio i made the first couple of records two or three records we made i played electric guitar i never liked the sound it was just like a hum in the background you know chords yeah. c a minor f and g it was just like a hum in the background behind hack they didn't like it and when we came to apache when the, i said to cliff because cliff had bought this uh j200 we all went to see, uh, we were going to tour South Africa. We we're on the way to South Africa. The plane was late. So we went to the movie house and saw Elvis Loving You. And in the Loving You, he plays a blonde J200. Mm -hmm. and Cliff, well, that's on the album, isn't it? That's get, on, the, on, on the, the album cover. Yeah, I've got to get one of those, just the same. So I said, can I borrow your acoustic, Cliff? And I borrowed uh, the J200 and played it on Apache. And I used it on most of the hits after that because it was suddenly there was no hum in the background it was just i mean you listen to the opening chords of apache you know oh yeah fantastic yeah, yeah. But big, no no well, coincidence do you also think it's probably that, not a coincidence that pete that's what oh, i was gonna sorry. say no exactly yeah. gonna say that. great mind that yeah no, that pete townsend has always played a j200 yeah yeah great guitar great guitar and david bowie Did whenever it? he played an acoustic it was a j200 was it yeah apart yeah. from yeah Big sound, big sound. And that yeah. became, with Hank, obviously Hank with the, the echo box, him on his echo box, I played acoustic rhythm, and that was the essential sound of the shadows in, in terms of guitars. I very, very, very rarely went back to play electric on a, on a record. Uh, were, the, were the Everly's an influence at that point? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. On me, if we're talking about Bruce Welsh, the biggest r uh, rhythm influences were the Everly Brothers, Don, I found out years later it was Don Everly. Don's the great player. So he was the great player. Right. And of course, but because hadn't 
hadn't you and you and Hank had entertained the notion of being a sort of Everly Brothers in terms of vocals, hadn't you? We were everybody. We were the Everly Brothers. We were Elvis. We were. <laughs> yeah. Who, who do you want us to be? Uh, yeah, sounding like idiots. But um, yeah, we copied everybody because you do. You know, when you everybody, you know, it's like when you start, you copy your heroes, don't you? You listen to their stuff, and you you want to be able to play like that. And, and uh, when I heard. Um, bye bye love. The intro to Bye Bye Love. And then I heard Wake Up Little Susie. You know, I thought, this is what I want to sound like. This is what you know, acoustic. Because the Everly's vocally were massive influence on the Beatles as well, weren't they? Well, they were everybody. I mean, you could never top Don and Phil because they were family. They were brothers, so they had this perfect blend. Um, they recorded on one mic. They just looked at each other slightly. You know, they were just looking at each other slightly when they sang. So they were always, the phrasing was like absolutely perfect. You know, you see it if you watch the um, their, their comeback concert at the Albert Hall about 1986 or 89. And you watch them and they just, they look slightly, they just slightly look at each other with the phrasing. But it's Don playing all the clever you know, ding, 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 all the stuff. So I said, that's what I want to be. You had, I had Hank, my mate, playing all the clever, willy-diddly stuff, inventing great solos, solos of his own. And I said, I want to sound like that. I want to be a rhythm guitar player like that. And, and that's what I try to become. Because, because that sound was great. And, and actually, in the context of the time, um, your acoustic sound is kind of very... Advance. I mean, they're really beautifully recorded. I, you know, I don't know how much work went into. Did you sort of work on a way to record it, or you know, no. mic placement or whatever? No, the just... engineer did that. You know, yeah. down. I played in a strange way. I would sit down and and I I would <laughs> try to show you, but I can't show you. I, I would. Oh yeah, I get it. Yeah, I'd yeah. Sit up straight, and <laughs> play over the guitar. I didn't play rhythm. I, I sort of lay back a bit, so it was the guitar was laying across my tummy. And I played sideways, if you like, you know, it looked strange, it looked strange. But the engineer would then come and put the microphone to where I am, you know, out of the way I'm playing. How was it presented to you? How did you know that? Uh, was it given as a demo or did Lionel play yeah, it? Or? I'm telling the story. It's a famous story, but Cliff had made a movie um, called Serious Charge. I mean, this is how fast things worked in those days. We went on tour in October 58, right? He did a three-week tour. In December, he was making a movie. He was making a movie. I mean, it's just ridiculous, you know. And from this um, serious charge film, he'd recorded with Nori Paramore's sort of orchestra, brass and stuff. It sounded like an old Maid of Vale session, you know, trumpets and all that stuff. That was over. And... Uh, so the film came out and Cliff came and said, uh, they want to release a, a, a single from the movie, you know. And they we're thinking of Living Doll. I said, you can't release that pile of crap, Cliff. It's awful. It's an awful, you know, arrangement. It was just like a session, you know, like trumpets and strings. And and I said, we should do it like this. And I sat down with his acoustic and just went, ding, 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 ding. Got myself a crying. And that's what we did. That's how more Everly's, more Everly's, in fact. Yeah, that's how. Yeah. 
yeah. Let's see, they, there you are, producing. You see, Bruce? Yeah, I just, well, not producing, yeah. but ideas. I, well, I, I certainly yeah, but that's, you know, that's... I certainly see you can't, you can't release that sort of BBC session type you know, record, you know, it's awful. And, you know, and anyway, it sold a million, so we everybody was happy, you know. And I stuck with acoustic, you know, most of the, my career then. And, and so how did how did you come to sort of decide you were going to make a, an instrumental and, and, and do it without Cliff? Was well, that Cliff's idea? It wasn't idea? so much. Cliff had got us the deal. Norrie signed us. We did. We had to provide. Um, so the first single came out in January 59. Um, a vocal. That was a flop. Three months later, we put out a thing called uh, Jet Black, which was Jet on a, you know, the bass solo type of thing. Then um, an, another single came out. So we had three flop singles. And by now, we're into April of 1960. We're on the road, Cliff and the Shadows on the road. And there was a, a, a singer called Jerry Lord, singer-songwriter, lovely man. And he said to her, this famous words, he said, Will you guys be you know playing another single? Will you be doing another single anytime soon? And we went, yeah. Every three months we have to. He said, can I play you this tune? And uh, we said, yeah. So he went to he came back with a ukulele, and played strummed on the ukulele. Ging, 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 ging. Down 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 down. Uh -huh. I went, whoa, love it, love it. Can we play this to uh, our producer, Nori? Of course, then we. We finished the tour. We toddled back to Nori and said, "Nori, listen to this. This is Apache. You know, this is such a yes, boys. We'll uh, we'll record that with Quartermaster Stores. You can do that with Quartermaster Stores, and that's the story. You know, we recorded yeah. both of them, yeah. and his daughters picked the uh, picked Apache. But because the, the thing with being an instrumental group, isn't it true to say? Because I know you had a lovely thing a few years ago when you actually got up with him. But uh, the kind of the, the Elvis for that is Dwayne Eddy. Yeah, Dwayne. Yeah, you know Dwayne that, that's kind of he, he. That's who. Yeah, that's who you look. That's was he's the start point for that. Because Dwayne came in September '58. I mean, very close. Mm. You know, we were October. He was September with Rebel Rouser. Wow, it's that close. God. Okay, so you're right. That was that first. Guitar. It's not like you admired him from afar for years already. Oh no, it was September. No, no. Yeah, okay. But there was that such surf music sound. Was that? That came a little later. This is more Western, isn't it? Because yeah. there's that whole kind of high chaparral. Dick Dale came in the, in the surfing thing in the early right. 60s with a beach ball yeah. and all that stuff. But Dwayne was the first, that fantastic. And he played the bottom four strings, you know. Yeah. And um, he recorded the echo in a, in a uh, what do you call it, a container. He had a great, um, you may or may not know, that Lee Hazelwood was his. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Lee Hazelwood was his producer. Yeah, he put the put the amp in this uh, container and got that echo. Amazing! Because wow. wow. yeah. Hank's delay came was Joe Brown found him that didn't he? He did. He did. We were playing uh, up north somewhere. And anyway, cut a long story short, Joe is a very he loves everything naturally. He just wants to play the guitar as it is. But he got somehow he got this echo box, the Miazzi echo box. He said, Hank, I don't really like this. Do you want to try this? Uh, this thing, and Hank tried it and loved it all. That tick, 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 you know, so uh, Hank toddled off and got himself one of his first Echo boxes. It was an Italian Echo box, 
And that's what we used on Apache and all the other hits. That became yeah. Hank's sound. Yeah, but it also goes on to become David Gilmour's sound. You know, everyone was inspired yeah, yeah. by that, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah well, let's was, let's uh, talk about let's talk about the Stratocaster, Bruce. Yeah, yeah. I would listen. I was just going to say, I was, I was just playing an icon before before you came on, and now I'm talking to one. So, <laughs> <laughs> lots of love, my fantastic, fantastic. Thank you, thank you, thank you very much. Fantastic. Um, the Stratocaster. Yeah. What have we got? Two or three hours. Uh, what do you want? What do you need? You want the truth? So, the, is it there? The, is it in the room with you? Is it? Is it in the room with you now? Behind <laughs> on its stand. Yeah. 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 Ooh. yeah. Just, oh. just talk us through these boys looking through the catalogue. Cliff wanted to sound American. He wanted his guitarist to sound American. Now we were listening to a guy called, uh, well, Ricky Nelson's guitarist. We didn't know who he was because on Ricky, oh, on Ricky Nelson's records, it says Ricky Nelson with instrumental accompaniment. It was James Burton. James, so, oh right. He was 16, so he's playing all this amazing stuff. We knew it was a, a Fender, but you know we presumed it was a Stratocaster. Anyway, so we listened to him, Scotty Moore on Elvis Records, mm. um, you know all that stuff. So Cliff said, "I want you to sound." You know, we were playing cheap guitars, really. We were. Hank was playing an Antoria, a Japanese Antoria, you know, like one of the first electrics, a little horrible little thing. Again. When he got to the fifth fret, the strings were hard to play. <laughs> was that all German, wasn't it? Quality instruments were German, weren't they? Back no, then. No, Antori was Japanese. No, I know, but I mean, what I mean is, is that they were cheap Japanese, but because you weren't getting American guitars. Yeah, you couldn't. I'll tell you why. It's a boring story. The Board of Trade, the English Board of Trade, put a ban on American instruments. And it was to do with, they wouldn't let, if, if an English band wanted to tour in America, you had to have an American band tour here, the Musicians' Union type thing. So you couldn't go down Denmark Street and buy a guitar, an American guitar, you know. So Cliff said, I'm going to send to Fender in California because uh, of Buddy Holly's guitar. And the catalogue came, opened the catalogue, went through it, and there it is in the in the centre centre pages, this red uh, Stratocaster maple neck. It was just Unbelievable. When we opened the box, you know, the cardboard box that came in. And uh, it was just sensational. And Cliff bought it for Hank to play. He bought it. He probably bought He probably gave it to him. But um, that's where I'm coming on to. Now. So that was Hank's sound. You know, he, we were, he had the Echo Box. We had the Strat, you know, the first one in, in uh, Great Britain. Wouldn't have had it. So you wouldn't have had a Fender amp, though, would you? Uh, wouldn't have had a Fender twin, no. Yeah. No, no, we couldn't. First of all, you couldn't have the money. We didn't. Couldn't get them. Yeah, Vox. I see. You're used to Vox, getting all yeah. these posh people, guy. That's your problem. With let's get a new app. Let's get. No, no, no. I'm. Yeah. I'm just saying. I know at the time it wouldn't be because you know in America they all would have played. They played a Strat through a Fender Twin. That's right. But of course you couldn't because it was hard enough getting a Strat over. Yeah, yeah. The shipping on a on an amp would be. So you would have been playing, I guess, a Vox. Cliff imported it. Cost him 140 guineas, which is about 150 quid. Gave it a hang. Play it, Hank played it on lots of records, all the big, massive records, Apache, all the hits, you know, Wonderful Land, FBI, all that stuff. And uh, I don't know if Hank told you, but in the early days of touring, you couldn't hear a thing. We couldn't hear anything because Cliff was mm -hmm. wiggling his legs. He was like the British Elvis and all that stuff. And there were no PAs. We didn't have any mics in front of the amps. Yeah, no monitors. No yeah. monitors. We used house, whatever the house PA was, so you couldn't hear anything. That kept going, and Vox, 
it's like the old story I was going to tell you. When you skin, you know, when you skin, you can't get anything for free. As soon as we made Apache and sold a million records, you know, yeah. what would you like, guys? Would you like some amps? Would you like some matching fenders? Would you like this? And so they gave us a, uh, a Vox 15, a little Vox. And we were right on tour again, and they screamed. We couldn't hear anything. We couldn't hear Cliff play. And Hank went to the Vox factory. He said, I can't hear myself. You know, it was so loud. He said, can you make, make me one of these, make it louder? So it was an AC-15. They made, they gave, put two speakers, and it became the AC-30. Wow. Oh, so yeah, wow. so we have Frank, we have Hank to thank for the AC-30. Absolutely. Absolutely. Why, why, do, why do we not know this? This is amazing. Thank you. That's Wonderful. a that's a brilliant revelation. Because he's a humble man. Exclusive to rock on tours. So how did how did, did you know without causing any trouble between mates? You know how, how did you end up with the guitar, Bruce? I'm going to tell you. <laughs> Sit back and relax. So uh, <laughs> so get back to about where you couldn't get anything if you were skinny. You anyway, but mm -mm. as soon as you're famous, everybody gives you anything you want. So suddenly Fender said, would you like three red matching strats? You know, the Fender bass, two strats. Oh, yeah, that would look great. You know, we were in the suits by then. So Hank said to Cliff, here's, here's your guitar. Cliff took the guitar back and we had all these new, all this new free equipment. Brilliant. And I went on like that. And years go by and I had the chance of producing Cliff, producing his records. That's right. You you were responsible for his reinvention, really. Yeah, Nineteen seventy-five. Seventy-five. Yeah. He he hadn't been in the charts for a couple of years, which was a long time for Cliff. He had he'd had a hits had dried up a bit. So his manager said, anybody who can come up with some great songs will have the chance of producing Cliff. So I I went out asking all my songwriter friends, you know, um, have you got any great songs for Cliff? This, that, and the other. So I found three songs. One was called Miss Unites, one was called Devil Woman, and the other one was I Can't Ask For Any More Than You. So we went in the studio and did those three, and everybody was really, really happy. It was different stuff, different sort of stuff. And the management at EMI said, we should make an album. We made an album called I'm Really Famous. That was the album. And uh, so I'm at, I'm at Cliff's house one day in his garage where his music was playing him song and i said where's the guitar cliff what happened to the guitar you know i haven't seen the guitar in 14 years or something he said it's under the stairs and i'm, I'm not sure this is the thing i can't remember if it, i said can i steal it off you or can i use it anyway i he gave it for me to use that was 1975 and i've still got it uh, still got it, still played it. I've played it on tours with him. I've played it on records with him. Um, wow. And he, there's, there's a great thing about the, the guitar and Hank and Cliff and myself. He has never in, what is it, 40 odd years, asked for the guitar back. Because if, right. if he'd said literally like that, could I have my guitar back, I would have given it to him because I, right. I didn't pay for it. So we go on another, I'm, I'm coming up to 82 now. A couple of years ago, he rang up. He was in town from Barbados. He said, oh, can I take you and Brian to dinner? So I said, great. He said, your manager, to, right? go to the Ivy. And I said, the Ivy? Oh, great. Okay. Rang Brian. He said, I'll uh, I'll let you know where. So I get, we get a message. It's the Ivy Marlowe. 
So it cost, uh, it cost me 90 quid in a cab there, <laughs> 90 quid in a cab back to have dinner. But as we were leaving, he said, should we just talk about the guitar? This is a couple of years ago. Should we talk about the guitar? And I said, yeah. And Brian Bennett was there and his friend Cliff Swen was there. He said, why don't, why don't we? He said, why don't you know? If you go first, if you die first, you know, if you go first, leave it to me. And if I die first, I'll leave it to you. And we shook hands on that. So I'm just hoping, you know. <laughs> <not to. laughs> Don't hope. Don't, Don't go hope there. Anything. Don't go there, Bruce. I mean, it's <laughs> yeah. got to be one of the most valuable guitars in the world, right? Yeah, it is. It is. What I want to talk about now, and what I think you know, what we're interested in really is this moment when, because you're you were the, this massive band. I mean, Cliff still hold, I think Cliff still has is number four in the all time charts of who had who's had number ones. I think yeah. Elvis is first. Well, him and Elvis had the you know before the Beatles, obviously. Him and Elvis ran the yeah. show. Yeah, but. But that moment when you end up in pantomime with Cliff doing, uh, you know, Aladdin or something. Yeah. And it's a big job. I mean, it's with Arthur Askey, isn't it? It's at the London Palladium. Yeah. 16 weeks. Twice well, a yeah, But But that, that sense that you were going into being pushed in a certain way into variety and in light, into light entertainment where there was this kind of, you know, upspring of the Beatles and what was going on. I have to say, there. I know what you're saying, Gary, but I have to say, you know, very early, very early on in our conversation, you're imagining the music business as we are now, or as it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It wasn't like that. Yeah. There were variety theatres. There were variety shows. They by then the Beatles had happened, so there were what we call package shows, as you know, where you get five or six. Acts from the 60s, that sort of thing was going on. Mm, 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 we would never do that we, because the Shadows could fill a show by ourselves. Cliff could do it by himself. But somebody says, you know, um, 16 weeks at the Palladium. The Palladium is the, was, probably still is, the, the place to play for many people. It was the biggest place. I'm not talking about the arenas that we all know now. I'm talking. Well, that's the thing that the kind of the big gigs as we know them yeah. didn't exist. Yeah. There were just those theatres, weren't they? Yeah. Yeah, uh, Liverpool Empire, three thousand, I think. That was like a huge place, because most of the most of the gigs we play, like Newcastle City Hall, it would be I don't know, a thousand or twelve hundred people, something like that. You know. Yeah. You know. So uh, I get what you're saying, Bruce. That was just the direction that seemed natural. I mean, there is a moment though, isn't there, when you go and see the Beatles play with with Hank, and don't you end up back at your house? Yeah. 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 They, Tell us the story. The house, yeah, yeah. Well, they'd had, um, we all loved Love Me Do, which was, I think, October 62. Loved that. Didn't know who they were. And then two months later, you know, Please Please Me came out. We went, wow, who are these guys? Got to go and see them. So we went down to Lewisham. Hank and I went to Lewisham in South London. Uh, and, of course, we were, for want of a better word, famous, you know. And I said, fantastic, they were, you know, screaming and all that stuff. I said, do you want to come back to, to my house? I live in North Harrow. Why don't you come back and have a few drinks and stuff? So they said, yeah, great. So Hank and I went back. I told Cliff, Cliff came. Um, they must have got cars there. Anyway, we're having a little party, well, I say a party, drinks on the stairs, and curly sandwiches and all that stuff. And, uh, and they got round to it and I said, they said, have you got any guitars here? I said, yeah, I've got a couple of acoustics. And they said, well, 
what's your next single going to be? And I said, well, we'll play it for you. So Hank and I sat with acoustics on the stairs. And it happened to be foot tapper. From the Summer Holiday film. This is going to be our next single. And they went, do you want to hear our next single? And they went, if there's anything that you... If there's anything I can do. Oh, what a moment. We went, yeah, it's okay. Wow. It's quite nice, you know, if you like that sort of stuff. <laughs> yeah, true story. Oh, true story. that's that's amazing. That I... is amazing. But we were friends then. Everybody was friends then. The, the act, you know, we were on the road. We'd meet on the in the Blue Boar on the M1, oh, yes. clock, 2 o'clock in the morning, coming back from Liverpool and Manchester and all these places. Oh, on the A-roads. This is all pre-motorway, yeah, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Oof, oof. Yeah. I mean, there must there was a moment, obviously, when you there was a disappointment in that it, it wasn't it sort of happening for the, for the shadows anymore. And you quit the business, didn't you? I did. Well, that was 10 years later. I mean, that was, we started in 58, 60, December 68. Funny enough, it was the Palladium again. Um, I was with uh, Olivia Newton-John. She was my love. And... Um, I thought we'd done absolutely everything a band could do. We'd we toured the world two or three times. We'd had uh, lots of hits. You know, we had I don't know. We had 30, 30 odd hits and the hit movies. Thirty five with Cliff. Big, and I just wanted to spend time with Olivia. So I said I gave them everybody notice, and I said uh, I'd like to, you know I'm going to leave after the Palladium. So. That was great. We had a great time, a great season there, finished that. And then uh, I was with Olivia, swanning around the world, doing whatever. And two years went by. And I said to Hank, do you fancy doing something different? You know, can we not, not the shadows, not the shadows. Uh, and he said, yeah. You've, and of course, that time, 1970, was James Taylor, Joni Mitchell, Crosby, Pye and Mash, all that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I've got to say, because that's one thing which I didn't really know about until, in fact, until we had Hank on. Yeah. I've got to say that that stuff is it's fantastic. Yeah, really you are is. such a, it's so Crosby Pine now. Well, that was, you know, Laura Canyon. But in, that, yeah. In Newcastle. And it's it's great stuff, that. But we did it. We did a couple of albums, couldn't get arrested because every time we walked on, they'd say, Players FBI, Hank. Yeah. Players yeah. Apache, Hank. Players, wonderful land, Hank. Yeah, couldn't, couldn't get away. We couldn't get away with it. So it's a but great harmonies, and your voice was great in the three yeah. Yeah. guitars, and and then there's that sort of psychedelic stuff like simplify your head or yeah. You know, but John Farrer, bless him, John we brought Farrer, John yeah. from Australia. Um, he'd been on a support. He had a band in Australia called The Strangers. We were touring Australia. They were a support act, and we used to just sit and watch them at the side of the stage. You go, my, who is this guy, John Farrer? You know. Fantastic voice, fantastic player. So when we decided to do something, I said to Hank, well, Hank said, actually, wouldn't it be nice to have a third voice, like another, another harmony? And uh, Olivia said, what about John, you know, John Farrow? I said, oh, do you think he'd be... I said to Hank, should I call him? Because Olivia was friends with him. So call John in Australia. Do you fancy coming to the UK and joining a band? And uh, he did, and that's me. He came. I was that's quite a punt, isn't it? I mean, it's a long way, <laughs> yeah. Big deal, big deal to come. And um, so he came, he lived with, lived with me for a year, and we did the albums and we did a little bit of touring. But he was the brains with the harmonies, he was a proper muso, 
you could read the dots. You know, I would, I would, uh, I don't know what it was like when you started, Gary, but I, I've got the high voice, so I sing chest voice. But I would just busk all the harmonies. You know, if, if Cliff's singing the melody, I, on do you, let's say, do you want to dance for, for make it easy? You know, so I'd sing ding, 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 just the harmony. And so when John came and we were doing, we'd written these songs, and uh, I'd start to sing a harmony, and John said, no. That's not quite right, Bruce. I need you to sing this note and that note. And I said, no, I've always been singing this sort of... I always do it myself, John. He said, yeah, but if you want my third voice on there to make this chord sound fantastic mm-hmm. on the top, you have to sing this note. So this is what he did. He vocally arranged the Marvin Welsh and Farrow stuff yeah, and yeah, played yeah. the guitars. Did he write You're the One That I Want in Greece? Yeah. He, he did. Wrote, yeah. uh, he wrote... Uh, have you... Um, Hopelessly devoted to you, he wrote. Have you never been mellow? Lots and lots of Olivia's massive hits. Wow, wow! And it, and it was her producer, you know, producer till she died. And suddenly, though, uh, Bruce, the the sort of it was okay to like the shadows, wasn't it? There was a there was this t- t- came full circle, and everyone admitted that that you yeah. guys were the massive influence that you were. It came back. It came back. I can't remember exactly. Oh, uh, so do we did a John Peel show. As as Marvin Walsh and Farah and a bass player, and I think it was John had said to him, "You should, you know, the shadows are so iconic." And there was a time, recently in the sixties, late sixties, whatever, it wasn't cool to like the shadows. You know, you're uncool. He said, "But that sound you had and all that, you should go back and do that sort of thing." So that's how it transpired, and we finished up doing, you know, talk about doing variety. We did. We agreed to do the uh, 1975 Eurovision Song Contest, and we did. Um, the public chose the song at the end of the day. The public, not the punters in the music business. Uh, oh yeah, you were on the Lulu show, weren't you? Yeah, we did a song a week. So there were six songs. We recorded six songs, and they do one. We did one every week, and then the public voted, and that's how we got the song. Let me be the one, and so that song. Uh, I think it was top 10. It brought the shadows back in the singles chart for the first time in, I don't know, eight or nine years, probably. Um, and uh, we did a few little concerts. And um, then... Is, is years, this before the iconic album? Yeah, but the, the couple of years went by. EMI said to us, we're going to uh, re-release all of your hits. The, you know, the mono... I said, really? He said, yeah, but we're putting it on TV. It's the new marketing thing. We're going to put it on television. Really? Who's going to buy, you know, mono, mono hits or, you know, 20 years old hits and all that? They said, well, we believe in it. Anyway, so EM in 1977, they put out The Shadows, 20 Golden Greats, it was called. Which I think is the first advert to ever feature someone playing air guitar. That's it, yeah, yeah, all that <laughs> stuff, yeah. So we said, well, good, good luck. We're a bit worried about the album. Anyway. It sold a million and a quarter in the UK. Ah, we hadn't sold that many albums wow. <laughs> once. And EMI said to us, you'd be crazy not to follow this up. Mm-mm. You know, you've got, you've got to go out and work and play to your audience. And we went out and played and everywhere was full. Everywhere was packed. It was just, it was actually bigger than the first time around. It got bigger than the first time. You know? And then this led to you doing two Wembley stadiums with Cliff, right? With Cliff, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Two, it, I mean, became, it became our, when was it? We did it in 80, 
86, I think, 86. Two, yeah, two beautiful days in June. And so it was supposed to be our 30th anniversary, whatever. So Cliff said, I'm going to do this. And he said, what I'm going to do is I'm going to get the old Old Boy show together. I'm going to get the artists from Old Boy, which is the show he started on. Fantastic. And so he said, it'll be Cliff in the Shadows and the Old Boy show. And I went, okay, great. The first row we had, Cliff said, uh, I'd like you guys to be in the, you know, like in the first half hour, you know, during the Old Boy show. And we said, no, we're not going to be playing one number in the Old Boy show. You know, we're already going to close the first half with the shadows hits, you know, and then we're going to close the second half with you. you know? We don't want to be an old boy. So there was a bit of a... Quite right. He got, he got miffed. Absolutely. He got, he got Jed Harris and Tony Meehan to come and play. Uh, so Jed and Tony turned up and played. It was just a great two days, fantastic two days. Yeah. Oh, that was the we... first time we played arenas like that. We should leave you on that high, really, shouldn't we? I think so, yeah. Oh, it's, uh, I haven't started. Fantastic, Brett. I haven't started. Oh, you know. <laughs> He's warming up. Oh, yeah. That's, we're doing a series. Oh, it is a series, isn't it? Bruce, what, what, <laughs> what, what is, is the music still in your life? Are you still strumming? I still strum, yeah. I've got arthritis, unfortunately, in uh, my left hand badly, my right thumb, so it, it stops me playing. I couldn't play like I used to play. You know, I, I would, I'd be letting people down to try and do... You know, I try and be as good as I was. Let's put it that way. So, actually, Bruce, of course, it, it, it's um, seeing as you got the red strat. Do you have the J two hundred that you used on all no, those no. records? Cliff still has it. Oh, okay. Tight bastard wouldn't give it to me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the red the red strat wasn't enough. <laughs> Bruce, so I, think, um, I think we've sorted the red strat out. You have. I think we have. have. I think we Let, have. Let's hope that decision hasn't got to be made for many years. Um, <laughs> Thank you. Absolutely, Bruce. Such a pleasure having you on. So, oh, Bruce, apparently you were sitting about four rows in front of me at Wembley, watching Arsenal. Can't win believe the... we didn't see each other in the same aisle. Beat, beat Man City. Oh, yeah. you probably couldn't see over his his fabulous quaff. I didn't recognise the Gary singing that hundred thousand people. I couldn't. Oh, I know. I was I was very happy to. Oh, oh that wasn't that quickly, magic? Unbelievable magic. Yeah, what? one of one of. The Arsenal fans have uh, sing sing one of my songs, Gold, for Zinchenko, and um, I, I managed to video all, all of the half of the Wembley Stadium, at least half of yeah. Wembley Stadium, s singing yeah. singing that song at full pelt. That was Fantastic. really emotional for me. Really emotional. Well, uh, this was against Man City. Yeah. 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 So have they got have they got a song based on a Duran Duran? <laughs> <laughs> I hope you rang the yeah. PRS during the. <laughs> Oh, great, great, great! I'm sure people could uh, on social media can tell us what that song would be to what player in Man City. It was a magic moment, wasn't it? Especially for you. I mean, it was just unbelievable. All yeah. of the people singing this song. Yeah. It was, um, Bruce. Thank you, and I, I'll see you before the end of the year. At uh, we're um, at one of our we're both sods, aren't we? Songwriters, yeah. of, uh, whatever it is. Uh, just... and I'm sorry you never got Society of Distinguished Songwriters uh, guy. You know, I was reading your CV. What's that, sir? I'm, I'm a bit sorry you never really got to play with any famous names, you know. <laughs> well, yeah, thanks. You know, yes, you can, you, you can still dream, can't you, Bruce? <laughs> I've never seen so many huge bands. You play. Fantastic. Yeah. Oh, that was great. That was fantastic. Yeah, so many exquisite stories that were so evocative and black and white. Yeah. The, the, the fact he's got a piece of potentially your dad's 
sort of I know co- it does, yeah. the collab that he did with Lionel. Uh, uh, that's fantastic. Yeah, oh. I, don't, I don't know if they did murals or or it was just Paris by moonlight. No, white. there's 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 or, footage <laughs> of it. There's footage of that downstairs area. You, I mean, you can see it in the shadows uh, at sixty dock that's on on iPlayer, and there's footage of that that whole wall in the background, a sort of orangey with. Oh, that's right. Yeah, but yes, orangey. But there's also a, I think there wasn't there a sort of slightly sort of Greek beach scene or something painted a bit on one side. Is that, is that really? really? Did, you were the model for that, were you? Oh no, you weren't even <laughs> born. You weren't even a twinkle in his. I wasn't though. What's it? His orange juice. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, I no, I just really have that. And if anyone wants to compare notes, there's the Hank Marvin episode that we did uh, yes. in lockdown. And do you know, I didn't get to bring up because I wanted to say when he was talking about Jet and um, Tony Me and, and Brian Bennett because I, I, one thing I have done is I've been listening to some sort of um, some shadows deep cuts, you know, like. Um, in, um, uh, Nivram, which of course is Marvin backwards, and Shadugi stuff, and there's some amazing playing from the rhythm section. Gotta say, there's some like really yeah. phenomenal bass playing, like what that you just did, weren't hearing at that time. Yeah, oh really? And Brian is yeah, great. yeah. But Brian's yeah. a great drummer, still still yeah. playing. Oh, again, but real inside out jazzy stuff. Yes, yes. So, yeah. Um, thank you to our producer today, Ian, uh, for uh, Gimme Sugar. Thank you to. What you for your for your eyeshadow? Imagine, imagine that for my eye. Yeah. I think it's healing. Is it? That was such a long interview with Bruce. It's almost got better. <laughs> <laughs> um, Brilliant. And I, and can I just say, Gary, congratulations on your BMI Icon Award. Yes, um, broadcasting. Gary has got a BMI Icon Award. I'm not. No, I don't know either. I don't know why. Yeah. <laughs> No, I, I don't know what it is. I don't know. These are no, 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 but it's fantastic. Part of the business. Very, very well. Thank so. you very much. Thank you very much. Uh, so until next week, good night from me. And good night from them. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.